Welcome to Pound the Rock, a Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined on this special all-star edition by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. How you feeling, Cash? I'm feeling good, man. Uh, our all-star picks episode is always one of my favorites of the year, both in prepping for it and actually recording it. I always look forward to at least one pick that will cause absolute outrage in the Wolfon household. Um, I'm, I'm really hoping I came through with one this year, although I don't think I did. I don't think I did. I think we might be on the same page a lot, which is not as fun. But I think the the biggest one was probably the Drew Holiday versus James Harden squabble that we had last year. And it's funny because I have no such qualms about putting Harden on the all-star team this year, which yeah. is not a spoiler because if you listen to our last episode, I already answered that question in the make or miss segment. So you were also very ve- vehemently opposed to Wiggins last year. Uh, yeah, that's true. I was. And I don't know. It's hard to like, I guess you could use hindsight and be like, well, he kind of validated it in the end with the way that he played in the playoffs. Like, I don't think you'll look back at that season and think it was such a travesty that Wiggins wound up being an all-star or an all-star starter. So, yeah, I mean, I I stand by kind of like the reasons for my disagreement at the time, but I think that's what's so weird about all-star in general is like it happens not quite at the midway point of the season, but, you know, with, with a lot of season left to play, and some of those picks, as a result, can wind up looking a little silly. Some of the picks and the omissions, right? Yeah. Because so much can still change in, what do we have left in the season? Like a little less than three months, right? Yeah. It's so, also why they should, for the 10th year in a row, I'm saying this, it's also why they should expand to 15 players per conference um, and up that player pool since the percentage of all players who become all-stars has decreased dramatically over the years as the league has expanded, but the all-star rosters have not. And you end up picking injury replacements every year anyway. So my idea, in case you haven't heard it the last five years, is expand the rosters to 15 per conference and then just don't... Don't uh, have injury replacements? Don't Yeah, don't have injury replacements. Unless it's like some real outlier year where like six guys, sure. I don't, maybe there should be like a limit. Like you pick 15 per conference. But you have to get to 12. Right. Exactly. And if you end up with four injuries or more, you start replacing guys. Uh, Yeah, I think that's probably worthwhile. I do think, you know, I had a couple pretty tough omissions this year. And me too. Would certainly make, I mean, it's not really our jobs because we're not picking the All-Stars at the end of the day. But for the purpose of this totally uh, superfluous exercise that we do on our podcast, it would make things easier if we could expand it uh, and take some of those tough calls out of the picture but i I actually i had a harder time in the east this year than in the west i don't know if you had a similar experience but that was kind of where it came out for me east is good i guess we can we can just get into laying out these picks now and see where we agree where we disagree if we disagree do you want to start in the east start in the west go back and forth how do you want to do this let's start in the west let's go left to right (laughs) okay um, and, you know, I think it's good we're doing this before the starters are announced because we can just do it, you know, without, not that we can't guess who the starters are going to be based on the return so far, but we can kind of just ignore that and pick who our starters will be. And, I mean, I'll just say right off the bat, I think, you know, the positional designations are another thing that make this challenging in a, in my mind, unnecessary kind of way. 
And I do think it's good that, you know, whatever it was, three, four, five years ago, whenever they changed to just like two guards and three front, front court players, um, even even with that sort of um, more broad designation of guard and front court, I think in the East, to me, like four of the top five clearly were front court players. Yep. And in the West, four of the top five were guards. And That's about right. in both conferences, uh, one guy that I felt deserved to be starting had to get squeezed out as a result of that. Same. Yep. All right. So you want me to give you my first West guard? Yes. So some people might say, well, if, if you're not uh, beholden by the like ballots and positional designations, then you should can use this guy as a front court. But I'm going to go by and just say he's a guard, Luka Doncic. He would be, well, no, I was going to say he'd be my MVP pick right now. He wouldn't be, Jokic would, but Doncic is pretty damn close. And I just think there's nothing really here to say. Like it's present me someone who doesn't think Luka Doncic should be one of the, the only way you'd say he shouldn't be a starting guard for the Western Conference is if you say, well, he should be a starting front court player. Cause that's more like, He's been phenomenal, and even in this golden age of superstar talent, where it is tough to you know narrow it down to twenty four guys total across two conferences, you'd be out of your goddamn mind if Luka Doncic isn't one of the two guards in the West. And that's saying something because yeah, they're <laughs> the, the West is stacked with guards. Yeah, um, he's just having one of the most outrageous offensive seasons ever. You know, thirty four nine and nine on. 61% true shooting, you know, outrageous usage. I guess, you know, the, the guard versus forward thing, some people would say you are what you guard, right? That's how they would yeah. designate a position. And in that case, Luca is more of a front court player, but I don't know, given the way that he plays on offense and you can right. make the same argument, I guess, for LeBron, right. And say, well, then LeBron should be a guard. And how do you square that? And maybe Jokic should be a guard. Uh, I guess maybe that designation is just increasingly meaningless. Like he is a lead ball handler. That doesn't necessarily mean he has to be a guard because in this day and age, plenty of forwards can be lead ball handlers. So I don't know where, you know, you know what an that, idea but... would be. Okay. What if, okay. Instead of scrapping positions altogether, they just updated the the designation. So you have to have a lead ball handler or like two ball handlers, two off ball wings, <laughs> Come a on. big, <laughs> let's just go position this um is this where you tell me Luka Doncic was not an all-star on your bed no I'm kidding where did you just have him as a forward or did you no 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 I mean oh, okay. I used I used the designation right. that's that what I had yeah, on okay. the ballot okay okay so, so he was he was in my starting lineup as well do you want to go back and forth or you want to just no yeah you hit me now with a, a west guard uh okay so this one I thought was going to be trickier than I feel like it ultimately wound up being for me. I went with Shea. Okay. I don't hate and it. I, I don't like this part of the exercise because I don't always know what to do with it in terms of time missed. Mm-hmm. And that's another one of those things where like, you know, you look back at the end of the season and maybe these guys wind up playing the same number of games or the same number of minutes or just the, difference winds up being negligible and you just wonder why the ostensibly inferior player wound up making it over you know the superior player just because at the time that you were voting he had played more but I think just in the spirit of the exercise where in my mind what we're trying to do is like pick who's been the most impactful at this point of the season 
the way that I try to think about it is, would you rather, like if you got to choose up to this point, would you rather have X number of games and minutes from player A or X number of games and minutes from player B? In a vacuum, I'm taking Steph Curry over Shea Gilgis-Alexander. But for this season, if I'm choosing which one of those guys would I rather have, I would take the 41 games and 1,456 minutes that Shea has played over the 31 games and 1,064 minutes that Steph has played. Like, that's almost a 400-minute gap. And, I, you know, if if Shea hadn't been as good as he was, like, I would still give Steph the nod. But I actually think... Like it's been close enough between those two guys, but I feel totally fine with that being the tiebreaker. And that's where I'm at. I think he deserves to start. Yeah, no, I'm fine with that. I mean, I'll spoil, I guess, my next one. I had Curry there, but I obviously had Shea in the mix for West Guards and not as a wild card, as one of the four uh, Mm -hmm. West Guards. Um, And like I said last episode, man, to me, other than Jokic and Doncic, no player has been the best player on the court in an NBA game more often than Shea Gilgis Alexander this year. So I've got no qualms about the fact that you would have him, you know, ahead of Curry and starting. And the thing is, too, like he's got the 400 plus more minutes. You could say his play alone, strictly this season, which is what we're supposed to be basing this off, has him right there neck and neck with Steph. And then if you're really kind of like tight and you are looking, I I don't necessarily like when people use just winning to determine all-stars I don't like when they say well this team's in first and this team's in 12th and I'd like to get the first place team two players like I I don't like that I think the best players should go to the all-star game for that season but I will say when it's close but one guy has played 400 more minutes for the team that's are the Thunder not actually now ahead of the Warriors in the standings they are tied so Again, I'm not that shouldn't be what people just like base it on, but I'm just saying in a in a standard year I feel like people would be like you'd think Warriors and Thunder and be like, "Yeah, but, you know, Steph and the Warriors." And then this year you can't really say that. And yeah, part of the reason the Warriors are down there is cuz of Steph's injury, but Steph's been on the court for a lot of these nasty road games they've lost too and these weird games they've had and a long way of saying that even though I had Steph, there's not really an argument for people to make where Shea over Steph is like egregious because it's really not. And that just tells you how damn good Shea Gildress Alexander has been this season. Yeah. I mean, I'm fine with using like, how do you, how are you impacting winning mm-hmm. as course. a determinant, but not just let's look at your team's record yeah. and pin all the wins or the losses on this one player. Like the Warriors with Steph on the court have been better than the Thunder with of Shea course, yeah. on the court. So and that actually wound up being a, a tiebreaker for me in at least one other scenario off the top of my head. So that is something that in a super close where I'm splitting hairs kind of situation, that can be a tiebreaker. But there's so much context that goes into those numbers too that like it just can't be the only thing or even a primary thing that you're looking at. I just think that is worth pointing out if you want to say, well, Shea has carried an inferior Thunder team yeah. to the same record if Steph has taken like the defending champs, it's not really fair because if the Warriors had been even just adequate with Steph on the bench, then, you know, they'd be near the top of the West right now. Um, All right. So I spoiled my second pick technically with Steph. So right now we've got Luca, Shea, Steph, we need one more guard and then we can, if there are any guards in the wildcard spots, we can get to them later, but why don't we do our fourth guard now? You hit me. Ja. Yeah. 
Easy. Agreed. So as as tough as the the picks were, I actually thought the four West guards non wildcard divisions were very straightforward. Yeah, might have been more difficult if Booker hadn't 100%. missed all this time recently. Hundred percent. But but yeah, uh, I think that was pretty much a no brainer. I don't know. Do we, we don't like? I think we, yeah. for the ones that are obvious, we don't need to waste yeah, time. That, that's what I was going to say. Case. Like even even in the way I prepped for this episode, I've got kind of more thoughts jotted down for a lot of the ones where it was tougher or mm. kind of like explaining my reasoning of one guy over the other or whatever. But for ones like this, like I'll be honest, for Luca, Steph, Shea, and Ja, I didn't really have anything written down because I think it's very obvious. Those are the four best. Those have been the four best guards over the course of the first three months of the season in the West. And, and like I was saying, I mean, I think they've been the four best guards in the league, period. But sure, like I was saying off the top, you know, if we were just picking the five best players in the West on merit, I think all those four guys would be starting yeah. alongside Jokic. You know, like yeah. filling out the, the West front court was probably the most difficult part of this exercise. And yeah. I, not, not that like the guys that I went on to picking aren't deserving all-stars. I just think that that category was considerably thinned out compared to the crop of guards. So yeah. I think the, the next one's obvious too. If we wanted to go West front court, you just mentioned it. You think those four guards with Jokic would start. I've already said he's my MVP pick. Very easy to say. He's both of our first picks for West front court. Um, if you do need any context, again, he's in line to win probably a third straight MVP. He's having the most efficient high volume or big scoring season ever. Uh, would top Steph Curry's mark from 2015-16 for true shooting percentage on a 20-plus point-per-game season. Highest on-off net in the league, surprise, surprise, for the conference's first-place team. Nuggets are 26.6 points per 100 possessions better than Nikola Jokic on the court versus on the bench. And if you looked at all the players who have played more than 1,000 minutes so far this season, the next best guy from on off net rating non nugget division, because as we've discussed before, a lot of nuggets guys on offs get inflated simply because they're playing with Jokic. So if you go to the next guy after Jokic is plus 26.6, it's Draymond at plus 15.4. Very impressive. But that, that shows you like the gap we're talking about here. When we talk about at least from like the on off metrics standpoint, Jokic's impact on his team. It's uh, it's unfathomable if not for the fact we've seen him do it the last couple of years. So unless you have any retorts, I think I, I do not. Uh, I, I think, think you can give have, me your. <laughs> yeah. We we've talked about Jokic probably enough yeah. on this podcast that we don't need to make the case for him as an all-star. So yeah. Yeah. This is where it got kind of tricky for me. Uh, I think the one that I felt most confident about, like to me, there were basically three guys that had a strong case for these last two starting front court spots. And the one that I felt most confident in was Sabonis. Nice. Do you have him there? I don't have him in my starters, but he made my, he really? made my all-star team. And I will say uh, that stat I just threw out about yeah. all the guys in the NBA who've played a thousand minutes and then ranking them by their on off differential. Mm -hmm. Jokic, a, a few nuggets who start with Jokic, Draymond, then Sabonis. I just and, think, and it matches the eye test. <laughs> yeah, it does. Like to me, there are, are you know are a lot of reasons that the Kings are where they are right now, and things that have sort of transformed the team, like the influx of shooting, Mike Brown's coaching, the season De'Aaron Fox is having. The single biggest factor to me is Domus, like and and the way that he's played. Like he, 
has allowed them to transform their offense and to play the sort of hybrid pick and roll and post oriented offense where they're running splits off of him. And like, he's a threat to score in the post, but can play make out of the post and can play make on the short roll and can kind of run the offense as a ball handler, like bring it up the floor, inject them with pace, like just make quality decisions time after time, be an unbelievably efficient scorer. And then, you know, I've mentioned his defense now a couple times this season. I think it's been like he still has limitations, you know, in the same way that Jokic does. He's he's just still not, even though the numbers early in the season looked pretty good in terms of, of his rim protection, like because he's just not that long and doesn't really get off the ground and doesn't have the best timing in the world, like he's not a very good rim protector and that limits them. Uh, and they have to use him in different ways defensively as a result of that. But like working within those limitations, I think he's been really solid. And just an underrated thing is is his defensive rebounding. And the Kings, despite not being a good defensive team overall, have done a very, very good job of ending defensive possessions. Like they're really good on their own glass. And Sabonis is the biggest part of that. And it's really impressive to me. This is something, again, that Jokic does exceptionally well. And that really impresses me when these guys who come up to the level in pick and roll coverage are then able to kind of crack back and get back in rebounding position and help their teams be excellent defensive rebounding teams. Like Sabonis has been huge in that area. So you take it all together, the scoring, the passing, the defensive rebounding, the overall decision-making, the on-off numbers, like you mentioned. And the scoring is maybe something to to hit on because I feel like that's something that he doesn't really get enough credit for because he doesn't do it at super high volume. But his true shooting percentage right now is 67%, which is third in the league among players with at least 20% usage behind only Jokic, who, as you mentioned, is having like the most efficient high volume scoring season ever. And Kevin Durant, who we've mentioned in the past as having maybe the best jump shooting season yeah. ever. Not not a bad couple scorers ahead of him. So I just think he, he's the biggest reason for the Kings transformation. And uh, I, I felt pretty good about having him among the starters here. Here's a question for you. And I don't think like we won't spoil whether Fox is in the West mix yet. We'll, we'll continue on this conversation. But the question I want to ask you is, who is the best player on your Sacramento Kings? Is it De'Aaron Fox or DeMontis Sabonis? Sabonis. I don't disagree. It, it's, it's always hard to... It, it's like the... It's obviously different in terms of the yeah. contours of the like the players and the play style, but like similar in a way to like the age-old Utah Jazz debate, like who was the best player on the Jazz? You know, was it Donovan Mitchell or was it Rudy Gobert? It's very hard to compare because so they different. both do such different things and they both need each other. You know, it's like a mutually complementary thing where context is always so important with those guys and like you could put either one of them on a different team and depending on the infrastructure around them one of them could wind up being more valuable in that environment on this king's team i think sabonis is the more important and more valuable player in a vacuum i guess i'm not really sure uh, i'd probably still lean sabonis but that's that's my feeling this season for sure is that he's been better yeah i don't disagree with that i mean there's a conversation we can have about look i love the season darren fox is having and i really like darren fox and this is not the time or the place to have this conversation but i do think because you know i was thinking a lot about how like the way we disagreed kind of over that halliburton trade at the time and how um i know you've come around on it and i've obviously come around on it from the king's perspective too and it it does look like a very win-win for both franchises i still think it was 
overall in the grand scheme of things, like big picture, a mistake to trade Halliburton, but you can obviously make the argument. It was a win-win for both teams, but the way I watched Sabonis this year and even Halliburton, I, I wonder if like the mistake wasn't that you traded for Sabonis and got rid of one of those two guards. The mistake might've been, did you pick the wrong guard and would the Kings be better off right now with Halliburton rather than Fox? Cause I think Halliburton has been better than Fox this season and is still on the rookie scale. Like, you, you might have ended up with a better guard taking up less of the salary cap right now. Still have been able to trade for Sabonis. Again, not the time or place to have this conversation, but I think it's good food for thought. And it's not even, it's not a rip job on Darren Fox. Like, I, I think he's having a fantastic season, especially in the clutch. Just so, something to contemplate or let marinate uh, in your mind. So who you went Sabonis or did I go Sabonis? You went Sabonis. So it's back to me now. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, I'm going to, Reward Lowry Markkanen for what has been an absolutely outrageous goddamn season, especially obviously on the offensive end. The guy's averaging roughly 25 points per game while flirting with a legit 50-40-90 season. He's 52% from the field, 42% from deep, 87% from the free throw line. Doing that to lift an expected tanker to a 500 record and currently a top six seed in the Western Conference. There are other guys, obviously, that were in the mix for me. I actually had Markkanen ahead of Sabonis, mm. um, but both were on my team. There is a you know another player that was in the mix for me uh, that I also actually had ahead of Sabonis for a starting spot, but they were both on my team anyway. Uh, pretty big name in the basketball world. Maybe you'll have him in yours. Maybe you won't. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go with Markkanen. Yeah, so the the stat that I mentioned in regards to Sabonis, the true shooting percentage among players with the usage rate above 20%, Sabonis is third in that category. Markkanen is fourth at 66.6% true shooting. He's at 60% on twos, 42% on threes. And just the variety, like the versatility of the scoring package is what's been so impressive to me. And like all the different ways that the Jazz can use him in that offense where... I mean, he is functionally a wing, right? The majority of the stuff they run for him is coming off of curls and pin downs and shooting off of movement and things like that. But it's like that the versatility is what makes those sets so dynamic because he can come off of that pin down and stop and pop for a three or he can curl or he can cut back door and go. And I mean, like he's thrown down some vicious dunks this year on guys when he gets ahead of steam going downhill. You know, he can play the the screening end of a pick and roll. And if a team switches, you know, he can kind of mash that smaller guy in the post or he can pop and bust, a, you know, a drop coverage or a blitz coverage that way. Like, I think that, yeah, just the, the dynamism, the versatility of the scoring has been super impressive. And the Jazz are fourth in the league in offensive rating still. Like, they they have really fallen off on defense as I expected them to. But the extent to which they've been able to sustain the offense has been pretty incredible and marking is definitely the biggest reason for that like just an unbelievable season i i wound up narrowly having him out of my starters but i would have no qualms with him being in there like i think i would not have him over sabonis but he was kind of almost neck and neck with lebron and i wound yeah, up yeah same so i had those I wound up guys. giving lebron the nod I had those three guys neck and neck, and I had Markkinen and LeBron ahead of Sabonis. But again, it's like at that point, we're splitting hairs. We have them. We're, they're all all-stars to us. 
Yeah, it just came down to me, like, I, I think you can make an argument that Markkanen is having as good or maybe even a slightly better season than LeBron is having. It's tough just because, again, like, that context. Right. Markkanen's obviously been the more efficient scorer, but he's able to do all of this stuff off ball and he has creators around him who can kind of set him up and put him in positions to succeed. And he's obviously helped himself in that regard with the way that he shot the ball and the way that he's moving around and finishing around the basket. But LeBron is just having to do so much of the work himself. And his playmaking is obviously like so drastically better than Markinen's, which is like the one area of his offensive game to me that's still super limited that... I don't know, like LeBron's just better. Who are we kidding? But even at this point of his career, LeBron is better. And I I didn't feel like it was fair to penalize him for, you know, playing on a team where he just, he doesn't have a ton of help. And he's still, I don't know if he's making lemonade out of those lemons, but he's squeezing, I feel like, as much juice out of them as he can right now. And the extent to which he's, he's managed. I think, to the, I think for this road. Lakers team, sorry to interrupt, but I think for this Lakers team, the more appropriate analogy is that he's making chicken salad out of chicken shit. But like, I don't, I, I never understood that. Like who's. Yeah. Me neither, but it just works for this Lakers team. All right. Well, you can't, that's not actually chicken salad. It's just, it's simply well, chicken shit. Like the, you, you use enough dressing. Who knows? Yeah, I mean it's, it's, ho- it's I Hollywood. Guess you, you could call it a it's chicken Hollywood. salad, but it's still no, it's still inedible. So, all right, finish your thought. No, that my my thought was finished. Like he's making whatever out of whatever, taking an unsavory thing and making it palatable. And I I tip my cap to him because uh, there was a a good chance in my mind that they were just gonna wave the white flag when AD went out. Right. And like their defense has really fallen off without him, which was fairly predictable. Like Thomas Bryant's actually been great offensively, but he remains one of the worst defensive centers in the league. So it's not shocking to me that, you know, that defensive downgrade next to LeBron and and LeBron being overextended on defense as well and having to play bigger as a result of like the lack of rim protection around him was going to cause a big drop off, but they've been good enough offensively to kind of stay afloat. And the reason for that is LeBron James just going absolutely nuclear. So that's it. That's why I gave him the nod. Um, okay. I, I just, he's, he's better. He's better than marketing. Yeah. No, that's fine. That's what I mean. That's why I had him over Sabonis too. It's fine. We, uh, we have two front court spots left in the West. And for me, these final two, because those first four we talked about were all shoe wins for me. I assume they were for you too. So that leaves us with two. And I had three guys who I was debating for these final two spots. My first of the two, I'm going to give it to Zion Williamson. Yep. And I know we talked about the stuff with like, you know, um, minutes played and games missed and all that without trying to spoil who these other guys in the mix might have been. What they've I'll say all is missed games. <laughs> they've, they've all missed games. Yeah. And out of the three, Zion was consistently more relied upon as the number one guy for his team. Mm-hmm. His team is better than these guys' teams while he was the number one guy on that team. Relies on him more. And one of those three, Zion played more minutes then through the first three months of the season. And the other guy in the mix only has played 90 more minutes than him. So 
at the end of the day, it's like, okay, what am I really debating here? Zion's been the best of the three. He's played the second most minutes of the three and, you know, is close to the guy in first. He's the most, the, the one that his team is most reliant on. Like, he's the guy. And so there's my argument for Zion Williamson without even really talking numbers yet um, for the next front court spot in the West. Uh, no arguments here. I had Zion in there as pretty much a lock. And in a different year with more front court depth or more guys who would play the full complement of games, then it maybe might have been tougher. But like we kind of just alluded to, the other guys who are in contention for that spot have basically missed just as much time. So uh, I think of those guys, when healthy, he's been the best. Although you could make a case for AD as well, yes. who was the other yes. guy. Correct. That I, I went on giving well. the front court. Mine as well. Too. So our, our, our four guards and six front courts, the exact same. Um, only 25 games played for AD, 21 missed. But in those 25 games, he was just sensational. Uh, averaging 27, 12, and 3 pretty much on 66% true shooting. Just absolutely eating in the pick and roll, playing all all world defense. Yeah, com- I was just say 27 12 and 3 and then plus a combination of about 3 blocks and steals per game with that. Yeah, which would rank him very near the he was leading the league at one point. I think maybe Jaron has taken that mantle from him since coming back. He might have taken that mantle from him on blocks alone. Like I don't yeah. even know that I need to look at the steals category to know that Jaron has eclipsed him, but was Jaron the other front court player that you had in contention for that spot? Was it Paul George? What? It was George. It was yeah. George. And you know how I feel about Jaron. Um, love him and love the season he's having. Love the boost he's given Memphis since coming back. I think he's even, uh, in addition to, I think right now being in line for his second consecutive pound the rock defensive player of the year award. He's also improved on the offensive end. He's a more complete player than he's ever been um, for the team. That's right there. Neck and neck with Denver fighting for the top spot in the West. But I think Paul George has been pretty damn good when he's been in the lineup and, um, you know, has been in the lineup more than Kawhi. So even the argument about his team kind of being more reliant on him than a, a guy like Jaron uh, is in PG's favor. And then, again, as much as I like Jaron, it just comes down to, like, if you if you gave me both guys based on how they've played when they've been in the court this season, as much as I love Jaron's defensive impact and the way he's improved, I would still, at this point in their career, still take PG. So... Um, I, I had him as my, he would have been my seventh front court player. And that again, no spoilers. Cause I have not said whether he's made it as a wild card or not. I'm just saying he was the next guy in for me. Mm-hmm. You know, if there needed to be a front court injury replacement, he would have been the guy for me, but yeah, had AD ahead of him because AD's just been better. Um, I, I think I wound up having Jaron a, a smidge ahead of PG in that kind of next group of players. And this is actually important. This is why I actually like ranked the players that I like wound up leaving off just because I, there are going to be injury replacements. Yeah. So the ranking of those players to me was actually important. And, uh, I wound up going with Jaron ahead of PG. I just think his impact has actually been greater. And obviously once again, team context is so important there. I think he's in like the perfect situation to amplify his skill set, but like the extent to which he has transformed that Grizzlies defense is just jaw dropping. I think they were 19th before he got back their first now, like they've been first by a mile since he got back. He's the best rim protector in basketball. I don't think it's particularly close. And 
you know, I, you know, I don't like to do awards talk this time of year, so I'm not saying. Uh, I've, I've already, I've already said he's our, he's our two straight reigning back to back pound the rock defensive player of the year. Yeah, lots of season left to play, but like, if I was saying now who's been the best defensive player in basketball, I think I'd go with Jaron. So, the league's best rim protector, who also hangs with Darius Garland on a switch and guards him for like twenty of twenty four seconds, like just unreal. So yeah, he was uh, he was my first front court player left off uh, PG just a notch behind him, but both my wild card picks wound up being guards. Same. You want me to go first? Go for it. Dame. Yeah, and I had him. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I'm, I was going to say some people might you know squawk over that because of the defense or whatever, but um, if you've watched the Blazers this year, which I've done a lot of. Defense be damned, Damian Lillard has been unbelievable. Even for Damian Lillard's standards, Dame has been unbelievable. Um, He's averaging about 29 points on 62% true shooting. And I will say, too, that like some of the other, like, I'm just going to throw De'Aaron Fox out there, for example, because I think he does have an all star case. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're comparing Dame with Fox, Dame has still been the better offensive player. Fox has been better in the clutch, but you know you shouldn't pick All Stars just based on who's been the best clutch player. Even though Dame yeah. was that no, but time. but like Fox has been insane, insane in, clutch. in the clutch. He's le- leading the league in in clutch po- total clutch points while also doing it on absurd efficiency. Like forty I think for sixty five like, shooting. Yeah, I was going to say I think it's something like seventy percent true shooting. Um, but on the whole, Dame has been the better offensive player. And when we're talking about Darren Fox, we're not exactly talking about one of the guards in the league who you can say, yeah, but he plays defense and Dame does it. Like, Fox might be an improved defender, but he's not that good of a defender. And the Kings are actually still a worse defensive team than the Blazers. So I'm going with Dame. Yeah, I went with Dame too. And I think he wound up being my my second wildcard pick. So it did come down to him versus Fox for me. And I just think... Yes, I I think Fox has been the better defensive guard this year for sure, but not enough to account for the offensive gap. You know, Dame at 29 and 7 on 62% true shooting. Fox is at 24 and 6 on 60% true shooting. I mean, Fox is like 58% on twos with just ridiculous mid-range efficiency, but obviously like the both the threes and, you know, interestingly enough, you think about Fox as being such a fast, explosive downhill guard, but Dame gets to the rim more than Fox does. And he gets to the free throw line more than Fox does. So just all around a more efficient scorer, a more polished, better offensive player. And this is one of those ones where like kind of the tiebreaker for me, because I felt like I was splitting hairs was okay. The Kings have obviously been way better than the Blazers. But like I mentioned, I think Sabonis has been the biggest driver of that. So let's see which of these guys, um, like which guy, which guy's team has performed better with him on the court. And the answer is Dame. Uh, the yep. Blazers are plus 5.1 net rating with him on the floor. Kings are plus 2.6 with Fox on the floor. So I sort of used that as a tiebreaker for them. Um, and I, I wound up having to do that because my other wild card was Devin Booker. Like Same. I, so we went 12 for 12 on the exact, we had the exact same West All-Star teams. Yeah, that's pretty, no, that's pretty no boring. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> But I guess that just speaks to the fact that these are, I don't know, these feel relatively clear cut at the end of the day. Yeah, I agree. That's why I was saying it it kind of felt more difficult in the East. Like this, as much as I would have loved to have gotten Jaron in there, you know, I would have liked to have gotten PG in there because I do think he, despite the Clippers being 
super underwhelming on the whole has had a very solid season, but these felt like uh, the, the clear top 12 guys to me. And yeah. again, who knows if, if Booker's going to play, if Zion's going to play, if AD is going to play, like there will be room for at least somebody else to get in. Um, I mean, I, did you want to talk about Booker, Booker or can we just... Well, yeah, no, I was just going to say that I think like the, for me, yeah, it came down to two of the three getting in between uh, Booker, Dame, and Fox. And then even if, if I went with Dame, then the last, last spot would be like Booker, Fox, and PG for me. And I just think... Book has been the best of the three this season. And even when you talk about games missed and stuff, he still cracked a thousand minutes so far, even with all the time missed. The yeah, Suns is more than Zion and AD. Right. And and the Suns, yeah, they're they've sunk, but they've sunk because Devin Booker hasn't been in the lineup. Like when he is on the court, the Suns are still a very, very good team. And so yeah, I, I think he's played enough. He's played incredibly well enough. And his, the difference with him on and off, even just from the eyeball test, let alone the numbers, is very stark. So, yeah, it's uh, for me, it, it was pretty easy to get booked that last spot. Yeah, they were 18 and 11 when he got hurt. They're 4 and 13 since then. They're about 9 points per 100 better with him on the court. Yeah. Uh, just a masterful offensive player. And like you mentioned early in the season when we talked about the Suns, a vastly improved defender as well. Just so impressed with what he's able to do off of the ball, like his footwork and his movement patterns and the actions that they run for him kind of coming out of the corner, kind of hoodwink defenders into opening up space for himself and for his teammates just has the game on a string and yep. looking forward to seeing him back and whether he can help turn that sun season around, but he, he, he definitely had to make it. So those are uh, our 12 guys again. So, just uh, just to recap for me, um, so my two, I guess, biggest snubs are my first two injury replacements would be Darren Fox and Paul George, and for you, they'd be Fox and Jaron Jackson. Yeah, like the my my list of snubs, and this is like where basically the guys that I seriously considered ends as uh, Fox, Jaron, PG, and Edwards in that yeah. order. Okay, uh, Edwards yeah, has come I, on really really strong yeah, lately. Yeah. Yeah. So if it winds up, you know, needing four injury replacements, then Ant would be the guy that I would yeah. get in there. But after that, you know, I gave some like token consideration to uh, Desmond Bain, who if maybe he'd played more games, might have gotten yeah. stronger consideration. Draymond, Aaron Gordon, CJ McCollum, Jeremy Grant. So but, Anthony Edwards would be our biggest snub if if the league went to 15, like my idea would be. Yes. Because that Fox, PG, and Jaron would round out our uh, our 15. Mm -hmm. so the 12 guys that we both picked as western conference all-stars in the front court Nikola Jokic, LeBron James, DeMontis Sabonis, Lowry Markkinen, Zion Williams, Anthony Davis in the backcourt Luka Doncic, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Steph Curry, John Morant and then the wild cards Devin Booker and Damian Lillard with that let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll do the east hopefully a little bit quicker than we did these western conference all-stars What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. 
All right, Cash, we are already pushing past 40 minutes here, so let's try and breeze through the East a little bit quicker, even though I mentioned off the top that the East was tougher for me to decide, so that would seem to suggest that we'll take longer for this. But again, with the ones that you know are obvious that we don't need to quibble about, I don't think we need to make a case for Kevin Durant as an Eastern Conference front court starter. Do you? Nah, I think I think we can give it to him. I think he's deserved it. So we're, wait, are we starting in the front court for these? Let's start in the front court for the East okay, because cool. this was the this okay. was the biggest cool. challenge for me actually. All right, um, because again, I think clearly four of the top five in the East have been front court players. Yeah, to me, Durant was the one where I'm like, okay, he's been the best and most consistent front court player in the East. There was no argument there for me, and that left two spots for three guys. Okay. My the next one then I'll give you that I don't think we really need to discuss because he's been the best player on the league's best team by far and he's a two way beast is Jason Tatum. Yeah, I wound up essentially locking him in as well. Thirty one points, eight and a half rebounds, over four assists, sixty one percent true shooting, terrific team defense. Um, even though I think he's fallen off a tad defensively since the start of the season. Uh and like you mentioned, doing it for the team with the best record in the NBA. Uh, I do think, again, this was one of the ones where like if if games played, minutes played wasn't a consideration, it uh, would have been a, a real interesting conversation. He might have been the guy that wound up getting bumped. But the other two guys, Giannis and Joel Embiid, both have played about 450 fewer minutes than Tatum has, about 10 fewer games each. And that, that matters. Like, it just does. Again, if we're doing that exercise, like, which of these players would you rather have? You know, 44 games and 1,600-some minutes for Jason Tatum or 34 games and 1,100-some minutes for Giannis and Embiid? I think you're going with Tatum, right? You are. And I will say that I think... Basically, what I'll say is one of those two guys between Giannis and Embiid, I don't think Tatum is better than both those guys on the whole, but... If you're asking me for this season, even if they played the equal amount of minutes, I think Tatum has been better than one of them this season. I guess we're going to find out which one. Well, yeah, but it's on you next. So you... Well, okay. So I just I have to run through some of this because it, it took me a while to make a decision. Yeah. I think, I, deci- we're, I think we're going to end up on the same page here. Yeah? Okay. I'm curious. Uh, so I was deciding between Giannis and Embiid. The Bucks and Sixers are both 29 and 16. Mm-hmm. Both those guys have dealt with injuries to their lead guards, although Giannis has dealt with it for longer and I think had to do more heavy lifting on offense. I do think Embiid's been better offensively. Uh, you know, I think they've been about equivalent defensively. Like I might even give the nod to Embiid there. He's been insane on that end pretty much ever since he came back from that illness early in the season and recovered from the, the plantar fasciitis that seemed to be bothering him those first few games. Um, and I would say, like, if Giannis has more on his plate offensively, then it's fair to say Embiid has more on his plate defensively, right? Like, he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't have the benefit of playing next to another monster rim protector the way Giannis does with Brooke or a point-of-attack defender nearly as good as Drew Holiday. You know, all due respect to DeAnthony Melton. And still, the Sixers are fourth in defensive rating just 0.3 points per 100 possessions behind the Bucks for third. And if you look at on-court defensive rating, like the Bucks with Giannis on court have a 107.4 defensive rating. The Sixers with Embiid on court, 107.4 defensive rating. The exact Amazing. same. Amazing. 
And then, you know, you look at like the, the minutes played stuff. Giannis has played 35 games and 1180 minutes and beat us at 34 games and 1183 minutes. So one less Jeez. game, but actually three more minutes. Giannis is averaging 31, 12 and five and beat us at 34, 10 and four. Um, the, the scoring efficiency was a big differentiator. Like Giannis has struggled with the workload that he is dealing with. The shooting has been a problem. 65% at the free throw line, 25% from three, 20% from floater range, 35% from mid range. And still with the amount that he gets to the rim, he's at 58% true shooting, but that's basically league average this season, which is crazy. That's league average is 58% true shooting. Yeah. That is the offensive environment that we're in right now. Whereas Embiid is at 64% true shooting and like Embiid's clearly the better scorer in my opinion, but he's also the lesser playmaker. So all these things to me just like make it hard to judge. Um, on court net rating, Embiid plus 8.9, Giannis plus 3.5. I, I was thinking about it and like in a lot of ways, I feel like neither of them could really do what the other is doing with his respective team right now. Yeah, that's fair. But all that stuff considered, I gave the nod to Embiid. So did I. So right. That's I, I I thought this might be where we disagreed, and in the end we agree on this too. That I think if if we had our way, based on the way this season's gone, we would say Giannis Antetokounmpo is not a all-star starter. Um, which seems nuts, but it's not. If you paid attention to what's happened this season, I think he's been the fourth best Eastern Conference front court player. And that doesn't mean he's the fourth best on balance. Like if you if you ha- if I had one game right now and I don't know anything else about the team, I just have to pick one between Giannis and Embiid. I take Giannis. I think yeah. he's the better overall player. I think Joel Embiid has been better this season, and he should be rewarded for that. Um, and I, what I'll say too is one thing that encouraged me in like kind of researching for this episode is that I had started to trend this way and lean this way based on the way the season was going, and especially recently, even if. I don't want recency bias to be a part of this. It's hard to ignore the way the Sixers have just like ripped through the last month and a half. I think they've won 17 of their last 21 and the Bucks have been very up and down. But even ignoring that recency bias, I've just kind of started to lean Embiid for this season. And I thought the numbers would tell me otherwise. And I was actually encouraged that when I sat down and looked a lot of, especially a lot of the advanced metrics and like team related metrics and the on off stuff, we're now trending in Embiid's direction as well. So I think we're both making the right choice here. Not so much a knock on Giannis as much as it is, you know, effusive praise of Joel Embiid and also yet another indication of how insane the plethora of talent, like superstar talent in the league is right now where a guy like Giannis Antetokounmpo, if we were going strictly on merit, would not be a starter. It's just another example too of where, like it's very hard to know what to do with team context and how much to factor that in because would Giannis also be scoring at like a 64% true shooting clip if he was playing next to James Harden like very possibly right but he's not so I don't know what to do with that you know like Embiid is still putting the ball in the basket at an extraordinarily efficient rate and I can't like penalize him for playing next to a great playmaker who's putting him in position to succeed I don't want to dock Giannis for that either, but I don't know. It's like the numbers are kind of so overwhelming in one direction that you sort of have to, and you, I don't know. It's almost just like them's the breaks, you know? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. We can only judge based on 
what like what it is it is yeah. what it is like this, well, this we can is judge what... we can judge any way we want and i think so to your point like i would agree in a vacuum like i'm taking i'm, I'm taking Giannis over and yep. like he to me is the better player but who's been better this season you know it has been Embiid, and and there are reasons for that that are outside of Giannis's control but at the end of the day, yeah, that that's uh, that's where I landed. Um, okay, so it's back to you. Who's who's our fifth front court all star in the East? Pascal Siakam. Agreed. He has definitely started to tail off of late. Looks like he's getting tired. Been playing a ton of minutes, having to carry a big offensive load. So it is understandable. The team is underperforming. He he's just been exceptional. Like you know, the yeah. Raps have been bad overall, but they've still been pretty good with him on court. Um, I think plus 2.5 net rating and about six points per 100 better than with him off. He's also doing it on pretty much league average efficiency, but his playmaking, I think, has also been excellent and would probably shine more if he had more offensive talent around him. And um, having to do it like operating in very tight confines, right? Like the there's just not a ton of shot creation on that Raptors team, not a ton of shooting, not a ton of space. And he has really found ways to make it work. Like, I just think his footwork, like his control of the middle of the floor and these kind of narrow spaces, his interior passing. And like, until he kind of hit this slump recently, had also been lighting it up from the mid-range. And uh, defensively, he's not been as good as he's been in the past. Again, just because I think he's carrying this huge offensive load and this huge minutes load. But even with the Raptors disappointing season, I felt like he had to be here. Yeah, I think his ability to give you like even on league average efficiency to be able to do that give you twenty six eight and six on league average efficiency this in this season where the league average efficiency is like fifty eight percent true shooting while playing that frenetic brand and like space consuming brand of defense that even if you think his defense has dropped off and he still had his moments where the defense has been spectacular too like I just think his ability to do all of that with so little help, especially in the offensive end, around him um, supersedes the fact that the team is disappointing and the team defense sucks and all that. Like, if mm. if you don't think he's been one of the six best front court players in the Eastern Conference this season, I would like to know where you get your substances from. Because what, uh, what was it you accused me of doing when I didn't have Harden on my ballot last year, doing quaaludes with Rob Lowe? <laughs> Oh, yeah. That's right. Because Rob Lowe had just told the story about doing quaaludes, I think, on one of the late night shows. Ah, good times. Um, you, want me to, you want me to give you our last East Frontcourt player, or did you have anything else to say about Pascal? No, Sack? no, no. Uh, yeah, let's, let's get on to the next one. All right. Uh, ended up going to Jimmy Butler. Okay. Yeah. And uh, look, I know... Jimmy, sometimes it, it like it feels like he leaves something to be desired. There are games where he seems like weirdly, maybe like not interested in that game or like kind of like he's floating around. But at the end of the day, like the numbers are still good. The advanced numbers are still nuts. And he still just gets the job done. Also from the heat, I would have had one of him or Bam. And I get the Bam's numbers are also good. And he's really taken a step this season, especially on the offensive end. But I still think the Heat are more reliant on Jimmy Butler than they are on Bam Adebayo. And I think it was close enough that for this one, it did come down like, well, who would you rather have? And I would rather have Jimmy Butler. I just think also like his play style being more of like an offensive, dom like ball dominant guy, wing stopper type of player. Like I 
I still think he's more valuable than Bam. And again, that's not taking anything away from Bam's season. I, I think he's had a tremendous season, but I still think Jimmy Butler's the better player. So that's where I went with that. Uh, I had Bam. Okay. Almost can't believe that I'm saying that because I had been, I wouldn't say I was down on Bam, but I would say that at a certain point I had gotten frustrated with his passivity on offense and his lack of development at that end of the floor. And I actually think he really turned that around. Like I think he's been asserting himself offensively in a very encouraging way. Um, like getting really aggressive hunting his own shot in that sort of mid-range and floater zone, uh, really aggressive rolling to the basket, finishing to the point that he was averaging 21 points a game. And that is on top of being one of, let's say, the five to seven best defensive players in the league. You know, obviously we know about the switchability, but like they're asking him to switch a bit less this season and to drop back a bit more. They're obviously asking him to to anchor the back line of that zone a lot of the time. And anything they've asked him to do, he's just been more than up for it. Like they're sixth in defensive rating this year, despite having a bunch of minus defenders in their rotation. And as good as Jimmy is at that end, like I think like Bam is still the backbone of that defense. He is the biggest reason for it. And then it was sort of a, another one of these like splitting hairs, tiebreaker type of decisions for me. And he has played nine more games and about 350 more minutes than Butler has this season. And uh, I sort of took that into account and said he was the heat representative here. Yeah. I mean, I, I laid out my reasons for Butler, but again, I, I had them as the two guys I was debating between. So it's not, it's, it's not anything that I can really fake outrage for here or muster some sort of passionate rant against. I, I'm fine with that. Um, okay. So are we going to guards now? Yes. Do I start us? Do, do I start us with East guards? Mm-hmm. Donovan Mitchell. So I think yep. what he's doing I, I doesn't really need much explaining. He's changed that Cavs team and raised their ceiling to at worst being a fringe title contender. They went from, as we've discussed plenty of times, you know, lost on offense with Garland on the bench last season to Garland now being their second best guard and second best offensive player. Um, and they now complement that elite defense with a much better offense. He's also competing on defense. Like, what uh, what more can you say? Donovan Mitchell is has probably been the best guard in the Eastern Conference this season. I don't think there's any probably about it. I think he's been by far the best guard in the East. Like his scoring has been completely off the charts. And yeah, the dude had a 71 point game. And I he's not been like such a ball stopper. You know what I mean? Like I think he's gotten everything in the flow of that offense and is still doing his best to keep everybody involved and you know obviously a big part of that is that he is able to play off of garland who is a vastly superior playmaker and he can focus more on finishing plays and hunting his own offense than having to play make but uh just in that role he's been so so good and you know i fully agree on the defense point too like he's he's working on that end man like he has obviously not anywhere close to being the biggest reason for the Cavs having the number two defense in the league right now but they're not in that position if he is not defending his ass off at the point of attack and fighting on switches and fighting around screens and, um, you know, being in the right place and making the right help rotations. Like he is, he's doing it. He's doing it all. Uh, I don't think there's any question. He's been the best guard in the East. The, the second guard spot was where it got kind of tricky for me. And 
I wound up going with Jalen Brown. I didn't feel great Dude. about it. All right, this is where we have our first big disagreement. I think. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, but I there was no there was no obvious guy that I felt like deserved to be in there ahead of him, and this is why, you know, I would have liked to have just had the five best players in the starting lineup here. But here's what I'll say about Jalen: his limitations are still limitations, right? And it's frustrating that we haven't seen a lot of growth in those areas in terms of. Uh, the playmaking, the off-ball defense, the ball handling, like, you know, the inability to really go to his left hand. And yet, for all those limitations, like, the things he's good at, he's just gotten so good at that I think he is still, like, a deserving all-star starter. You know, averaging 27, 7, and 3. His three-point shooting is actually down. It's down to 33%, but he's made up for it by shooting 59% from two-point range. Incredible mid-range shooter. Really solid at getting to the rim and finishing at the rim. And, you know, the limitations are what they are, like I said, but uh, solid defending on the ball, even if he can fall asleep off of the ball sometimes and gets back cut maybe more than any good defender in the league does or should. Yeah. Um, I think, look, he's he's been the the clear number two on the clear best team in the Eastern Conference, and that's that's why I gave it to him. Even though, you know, maybe uh, there there were other players more deserving. I don't know if there was another guard who was more deserving. All right. So I don't disagree with what you said about uh, Jalen Brown. It's why I had him as one of my four East guards as mm. All Stars. Yes, twenty seven seven and three at worst average defense. You know, in the shadow of Jason Tatum, he's been tremendous as the second best player on the by far best team. But I do think it's outrageous that you don't think there's a player that has been like clearly deserving of that second spot or whatever. Because Tyrese Halliburton this season has been effing unreal. And the way he has elevated an otherwise very sad sack Pacers team, I think just displays that. Like 22 and 18 with him, one and five without him. They are really sliding without him. He should be getting down ballot MVP votes for what he's done for the Pacers. Twenty and a league leading ten assists per game on fifty. You, know, you know the MVP. You know the MVP ballot is only five names long, right? I, I'm well aware. That ballot, I'm well aware. Have you have you have you watched the Pacers this season with Tyrese Halliburton and without Tyrese Halliburton? They're they're a top six team in. They're a playoffs proper team in a very tough Eastern Conference with him and. I just want As you to that, tell me if he's getting down ballot MVP votes. We know this ballot is not very long. It doesn't go down very far. <laughs> who's not on that ballot for you? Are you are you knocking? You want to know who's not on that ballot for me? Jalen Brown. <laughs> it's not on that ballot for me either. I just said he was an all-star he's, starter. Tyrese Halliburton, 20 and a league leading 10 on 56% shooting from two-point range. That's not, a league lead, that's not a league leading 10. Hold on. So uh, James Harden actually right now doesn't qualify for the assist per game leader. Okay. I'm going to get to that later. Hey, <laughs> the breaks are the breaks, man. <laughs> They're the breaks. 20 and a league leading 10 APG on 56% shooting inside the arc, 40% shooting from deep, 88% shooting from the free throw line, completely carrying and elevating a very mediocre at best roster to a playoffs proper level of play when he's in the lineup and they're as bad as any team in the league without him. I know you don't like his defense. I actually think his defense has been very improved this season. What he's doing on the offensive end this year and the way that he is just has games on a string is very, very rare. And the type of 
offensive mastery that only like some of the most special point guards I've ever seen in my life have been able to do. So doesn't that mean Tyrese Halliburton is as good as those, you know, like special point guards I'm talking about? Is Tyrese, am I saying he's as good as Steve Nash? Obviously not. But if we're just talking about the context of this season and what he's done this season, that's the level Tyrese Halliburton is playing at. It's been absurd. And so I think that to say that after Donovan Mitchell, there's not like it, it, we're splitting hairs with who's that second starting guard. Look, Jalen Brown has been fantastic. I get it. He deserves to be an all-star. The other guy we're going to have, I think both in our top four deserves to be. In, but I, I think that it's really unfair to Halliburton to say that there isn't a guy that stands out among the rest of the pack for East guards because what he has done this season is unreal. And the way the Pacers have absolutely sunk without him is a testament to that. I'm That's not, probably the most I'm passionate not, response I can muster today. But it wasn't was fake. It passionate. was real. It's very authentic. I, I, I mean, you know how I feel about this Halliburton season. So anyway, I, I, that's, I do. That's all he's I had, a, he's had a great season. He's a tremendous shooter and he's a tremendous playmaker. And I still would love to see him put a little bit more pressure on the rim. I would like to like see him be like a little bit more aggressive offensively. I still think he can lapse into passivity from time to time, but there's no doubt. And I had him in my top four guards, believe me, like he has completely transformed the Pacers. He imprints himself and his style of play, his tempo, his creativity, his unselfishness, all of that onto the whole team. And they are where they are because of him. But I don't think he's improved defensively. Like I think he's a real problem defending on the ball. And Honestly, that's reflected in the numbers. Like they're slightly better with him on the court, but still have gotten outscored with him on the floor this season. So I don't know that you can just brush that aside. And yeah, the offensive numbers are super impressive, but everybody's offensive numbers are impressive this Come season. Come on, dude. Come on. There's impressive, and then there's insane. 20. I'm saying he's an all star. He's a deserving yeah. all star. I'm just, but I'm just saying not- when you say that everybody's offensive numbers have been impressive, like there's a difference to me between. The, like, okay, like a lot of guys are putting up points or whatever, and a guy averaging 20 points and 10 assists while shooting 56% inside the arc and 40% from deep. Like, the, uh, that's to me is a big difference between that and just like, well, everyone's getting numbers a season. Like, those are outrageous combinations of production and efficiency. Okay, so if you are, like, like Harden's numbers have been more impressive than that, right? Harden's at 21 and 11 on 61% true shooting. Obviously, he's playing next to Joel Embiid. It's not really a fair comparison, but right. for, for exactly. Um, there you, go. you just answered exactly what my answer was going to be. That's it. That's the that's the difference. No, I factor. listen. I think James Harden has is is obviously would be picked by more people right now, and is obviously a Hall of Famer. But I think Tyrese Halliburton right now this season, as good as James Harden has been, and I guess we're spoiling it because he's my fourth All Star too. Definitely deserves it. I think Tyrese Halliburton has been better this season than James Harden. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not going to mount a super passionate defense because I didn't feel great about picking Jalen anyway. So, <laughs> uh, I laid out my reasons for doing so and for having him there over Halliburton. But I don't have a problem with Halliburton being there. Like, I'm not, you know, we don't have to turn this into a contentious back and forth here. Uh, I think Halliburton trying to give the people what they want. Halliburton's very deserving, and I, you know, it really, I, I kind of waffled back and forth from, you know, between Jalen, between Halliburton, and between Harden. Um, but I'd be fine having it the other way, having Halliburton starting. Honestly, having Harden starting. I think Harden's been that good. Yeah. So I made the case for Jalen. You made the case for Halliburton. Uh, 
I made the case for Harden in make or miss last week, but just to reiterate, 21 and 11, I don't, you said he doesn't qualify, but if he did, he'd be leading the yeah, league. I, I honestly don't, did Harden miss that much time that he's, it's, I it think is weird he, that he's missed like 15 games. It, it was okay, not. So he's, pro- he's probably like right on the cusp of going to like qualify for it soon. And I will admit that like he'll take, he'll overtake Halliburton for the league lead in assists. And also, as I mentioned in that make or miss segment last episode, he's on pace to become the 15th player in history to average at least 21 points and 11 assists in the season. Yeah. And I mean, he's, let me just correct that. Sure. It's going to be the 15th season ever recorded of 21 and 11, not the 15th player. Harden is already one of the players who had the first 14. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just think the, the Philly offense is really humming right now. And I struggle with this sometimes because I want to give guys credit for, improving in certain areas and making adjustments to their game. But when like there were certain limitations in their game that I feel like shouldn't have been there in the first place, I don't necessarily know if I should like, should I give James Harden credit for like shooting more threes off of the catch and like making that adjustment when it shouldn't have ever needed to be an adjustment that he made? I don't know. Uh, You know, should, should I give him credit for getting off the ball a little bit earlier than he used to and not monopolizing possessions the way that he did early in the season? Probably not. But I just think he has that offense in a really good flow right now. And him and Embiid, you know, to, to take it back to like the Embiid versus Giannis conversation that we had and Embiid's numbers, like they are really benefiting from playing next to Harden and Harden just finding him in the pocket like 18 times a game. Yeah. And it's funny watching their pick and roll. It doesn't really look like the other sort of dominant pick and roll combinations you would think of, right? Because there are no lobs, you know, there aren't really any hard rim runs even right it's kind of just happening in that in-between space where Embiid is basically just like rolling to the free throw line or like the dotted line every single time but it doesn't matter because it's like automatic and like their timing is so perfect right now Harden just always hits him right in stride and like he has to take the exact right number of dribbles to like engage the defender long enough to find Embiid open on that little short roll. And yeah, I mean, it's like clockwork right now. Um, You know, his defense has been bad as usual. I don't know that it's necessarily been any worse than Halliburton's has like in transition. It certainly has been because he's been, you know, outside of Trey young, maybe the worst transition defender in basketball, but in the half court, I think I'd actually argue that he's been better just because he still does have that ability to like battle in the post. Yeah. He's strong. All right. So despite my, uh, my rant, we actually do have the same four, just in different orders. We've got Mitchell, we've got Halliburton, we've got Harden, and we've got Brown. Uh, so then that leaves two wild cards, and we are going to have, I think, some difference here because you already had yeah. Jimmy Butler, and I had Bam, and so I, I really wanted to get Jimmy in here in one of these wild card spots, and I actually I cannot believe it. I wound up leaving him on the outside looking. That's in. fine. I left I left Bam out. Um, so my first wild card was Jalen Brunson. Same. The Knicks are eighth in offensive efficiency right now. <laughs> like I, I don't really know how they're doing it, you know, except to say like, yes, they're hammering the offensive glass and, you know, Randall's had some, some pretty good games here and there, but like, I just attribute it mostly to Brunson who has been so good 
his his in between scoring has been amazing, like floater range, mid range jumpers, sneakily one of the best ISO scorers in the league, and. I don't know. I just feel like he, he has bailed that team out of a lot of jams at the offensive end. And uh, he's been the biggest reason that they have taken the huge step that they've taken offensively, like has them playing with a lot more pace than yeah. they've played at in the past. Yeah, I was gonna say, I, I think he needs to be rewarded for elevating this Knicks team to like being in the hunt for a playoffs proper spot in the top six, a top nine league wide point differential. And I think like, yeah, he's obviously the biggest difference. Um, in the Knicks from last year to this year. And I also think, because Randall numbers-wise, like should be in the all summers I didn't have him in there, but I'm saying numbers-wise, he should be mm. on there. Like the numbers he's putting up for a good, what's been a good Knicks team. But the way I view it and the, is the, like the way I would defend it is Jalen Brunson has been the difference for the Knicks from last year to this year. And Jalen Brunson has made the Knicks competitive enough for Julius Randall to play like he gives a shit again. <laughs> and I think I think Jalen Brunson should be rewarded for that more than Julius Randle. But one thing I will bring up, and it's something I wanted to ask you because I can't really square it, is and like the, to me the eye test says Jalen Brunson has been the Knicks' best player, the Knicks' most important player, the biggest difference from last year to this year. I stated all that, but all literally all the advanced metrics, all the like all encompassing advanced metrics, the on off stuff says that Julius Randle's been their most important player. And again, I, I think both of us are the type of, you know, basketball coverers, observers, pundits that combine eye test and numbers. We wouldn't let one, like, lie. We wouldn't let one of those things, especially when it comes to numbers. Like, we wouldn't let numbers change our mind if it's something we clearly witness. And that's what I'm saying. Like, Jalen Brunson's clearly been their best player. But from your perspective, why do you think the numbers have lied in this case? and would indicate that Julius Randle has been their best and most valuable player. Uh, I, I guess I would have to know which numbers specifically you're referring to. And like, well, there are some... the all encompassing well, like ones and uh, whether it's like, you know, 538's Raptor ESPN's real plus minus uh, mm-hmm. basketball references value over replacement player. And I do believe even their on off net ratings, Randall comes out ahead in all of those. Um, yeah, I don't really know. I mean, you could chalk it up to lineup combinations and who's playing with who. And like when it comes to structuring their transitional lineups, like, you know, who is having to carry weaker lineups. And this is very anecdotal on my part, because not that I haven't like tracked the Knicks and watched a lot of Knicks games this season, but I wouldn't say that's something specifically that I paid super close attention to. Like, which of those guys is being asked to do more with less when it comes to playing them with multiple bench guys. So that could be part of it. Uh, And I know some of those all-in-one stats do take box score stats into account. And somebody like Randall, who I think is capable of being a solid defender, but on the whole, I would say nets out, you know, around average, something like defensive rebounds. Yes. It like really factors into defensive all-in-one metrics a lot of the time, and yeah, obviously that's an area where where Randall is going to grade out pretty well. Uh, so I, I don't know. I can't really say. All I can say is, no matter what the numbers are telling me, and I think Randall's a good player who has been very good this season, but there's just call it aesthetic bias if you want to. I just can't quite get there with him because the process is so vexing to me at times and like so ugly. He really stops the ball. I think his vision is quite limited. Mm -hmm. He can 
be such a black hole and eat up so much clock, like working himself into a low value shot. And I'm not like Brunson dances with the ball a lot too, right? Like I'm not saying that he is some whip quick ball mover who gets off it early and makes sure that, that everybody gets a touch, but he is just, he plays with more pace. And I'm not even just talking about like in transition. I mean, in the half court, he's more decisive. Like he gets them into their stuff quicker. And even when it's like him attacking, he's doing it quicker. So I don't know, maybe that's just like, maybe that's a flaw for me. You know, maybe I have like certain blinders on where I'm just seeing this and it's effective some of the time. And I just can't get past how sloggy it looks, but that that's kind of it for me. I just can't, I just think the process is so ugly for Randall so much of the time that I kind of can't get there. No, I, I'm with you on that. And I would also agree that I think, yeah, my, my hypothesis for why his advanced numbers are, are lying is that I think he is somehow probably getting too much credit for the team's defense. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So who's your last wild card? Damar. Nice. I had him out. I had him as one of my snubs, um, but yeah, I'll hear his case. Well, I mean, look, it came down to him versus Butler for me and uh, fuck. I don't know, man. Uh, that's, I, that's I, tough I, for me, man. Like yeah. I, that I, I'm saying it's tough. It, we both love DeMar, but that would be really tough for me, even in this season to, to have him over Jimmy. Yeah. I, he just, he's basically been as good offensively as he was last year. Like he hasn't been quite as good in the clutch because that would have been very hard for anybody to do. But, you know, 26, five and five on 60% true shooting, just still that absolute assassin in the mid range, completely unbothered, gets to his spots, no matter who's guarding him, how he's being guarded, manages to find space, manages to bamboozle defenders with that pump fake, you know, the step throughs get into the rim when he does get guys on that fake and like, you know, the playmaking is super sharp. I just, I don't know. The Bulls, I guess, have been disappointing on the whole, but I put very little of that on DeMar, who I think has been awesome. But at the same time, you could kind of say a lot of that same stuff for Butler and add in the fact that he's like a vastly, vastly better defender. And then, you yeah. know, the the kind of workload and the minutes difference between them that, you know, kind of nudged me toward DeMar maybe evaporates. On the spot here, I might I might change it and I might give Jimmy that last spot, but it's close because like you know I I do think Demar's been excellent and I'd have no issue with either of those guys getting this last spot. So if you if you were to go with Butler, I just realized uh, we would end up with the exact same twelve again because I did actually have Bam as my final wild card. I thought All right, in that case, I'm going with Demar because fuck that. <laughs> just, yeah, that's fine. But no, I. Uh, the last spot, and I think you might disagree on me even having Trey in consideration here based on how you know atrocious he's been defensively and the Hawks have been disappointing as well. And the fact that some people might say, well, DeJounte has been like bitten even better. But if you, I still think Trey is the most important Hawk on that team. And kind of similar to what we were saying with Dame, when you can say what you want about the defense, in Trey's case, he doesn't even seem like he's having as good an offensive season as Dame. But then you look at it as like when he's on the court, the the Hawks are actually still pretty good. And he is in a down year averaging what, like 28 points and nine assists on still league average-ish efficiency. That was why Trey for, was in the mix for me, but I did still end up going with Bam for a lot of the reasons you already talked about. And I had mentioned as well when I was talking about him versus Butler, where I actually do think he's improved 
his offensive game while still being an elite defensive player who's been their like highest minutes guy because at the time Butler's missed. And the fact that he was even in the conversation for me with Jimmy in terms of impact, even though I went with Jimmy, the fact Butler had even ele- uh, Bam had even elevated his play to that point, I'll give him the edge over Trey because of you know how egregious Trey's defense has been. But I will admit that it also makes me feel weird in that like not it shouldn't be decided by this, but it, it is weird to me that I've got two players from the Heat, and you know you came close to doing that as well when they like they're in the they might be in the top six now. We're tied with the Knicks for that last six spot, but it feels like they've dis- been disappointing and they've been so underwhelming for so much of the season that it it's strange to have two Heat players in this year's all-star team, but it is what it is. Um, that's that's how it ended up shaking out for me. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, why, why should that matter at the end of the day? Like, if they've yeah, been two of the 12 best guys. Yeah. Like, I, I, I guess it's, it's weird for me to consider in the sense of, like, in this season that we talked about of unprecedented parity with the talent as dispersed as it is, we're both almost acknowledging that the Heat have two of the top 12 players in the East, and yet their overall play hasn't reflected that. And I know obviously it's because you need more than two guys on a basketball team, but Mm. I do think that's interesting. You know, it's this balanced season of dispersed star talent. And yet one of the teams we're saying has two of the top 12 or in your case, two of the top 13 players in the conference Mm -hmm. is fighting with the Knicks just to stay in the top six. It's interesting. Yeah. It's a bit head scratching for sure. But I mean, you could also say how much distinction is there really? You know, like if you were to expand that field to like 15 guys, then you could probably have Randall in there and there would be two Knicks. You know, you could yeah. expand that field to 18 guys and maybe you'd have both Trey and DeJounte in there for a yeah. really disappointing Hawks team. You know, it's like there are a lot of different reasons, I guess, that teams don't click. And I don't think you can just look at it as like, well, the Heat have been disappointed. Like you said this off the top, right? Like, when we're talking about like team success and how much that should factor in or shouldn't factor in can't just be like, Oh, the heat have been disappointing. There's no way they can have two all-stars. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, and, and to the Trey point, like I gave him kind of, you know, he was in when I was ranking my next guys out. I had Jimmy slash Damar, I guess is like yeah. the first cut followed by Garland, followed by Randall, followed by holiday, followed by <laughs> Trey and DeJounte. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Maybe this is another aesthetic bias, but like this is actually a case where, yes, okay, the, the Hawks offense is way better with Trey on the floor. The Hawks in general have been pretty good with Trey on the floor. I've mentioned before how their opening night starting lineup has actually been really, really effective. And his playmaking is by far the most important ingredient in making that offense work. But in terms of the issues that they've had, the fit issues, the awkwardness and like the, the, the stagnation, like all the, the, the reasons that their offense has sunk from, and again, this is unfair to Trey because they were second in offense last year pretty much entirely because of him. So he set a, a high bar for himself, but they've sunk down to like 20th this year. And I do put a lot of that on him. Like he hasn't done anything to facilitate, you know, the, the integration of DeJounte. Like he, the reason they stagnate and get bogged down a lot of the time is because of him and because he doesn't do anything off ball still. And because of his propensity to kind of dribble the air out of the ball, like even if at the end of that string of dribbles, he is making a really productive pass, you know, it's not necessarily optimizing the guys around him. Like I, I look at Kevin Herter as kind of a perfect example of that. Right. And, you know, I've said part of Herter 
kind of being unlocked is, is Sabonis and like the Hawks didn't have anybody like that, a big man like that who Herder could operate with in that offense. But it was also the fact that he was so stationary in Atlanta. And even if Trey was ultimately like setting him up for a lot of clean catch and shoot looks, that was not necessarily getting the most out of him as an offensive player because it was like left all of this untapped movement potential on the table. And in a season where Trey is shooting the ball really poorly, you know, 47% from two and 33% from deep and not finishing effectively around the basket. And his floaters kind of gone haywire. I feel fine about not having him really in serious consideration when on top of that, he's been, you know, one, maybe the most destructive defensive player in the league. That's something that I, I feel fine with him, you know, essentially overcoming when he's like one of the five or 10 best offensive players in the league. But I don't think he's been that this year, not by a long shot. Yeah, no, that's fair. You want to get the hell out of here since we've given the people over the last 48 hours, like 170 minutes worth of Pound the Rock this week? Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's get out of here for the week. And uh, Cash, I know we have at least one fan shout out banked, but why don't we hold that for next week since we're already yeah. <laughs> yeah. going really long here and uh, it would be nice for us to get out of here and get this thing edited and then go enjoy our weekend so anyone else that you wanted to touch on no i think i think we've hit everyone i will say maybe some people would say Kyrie, but i'd say watch uh watch the Nets since kd went down even when Kyrie's in the lineup no thank you oh i thought you were gonna say watch hebrews to negroes oh jesus christ yeah there's also the fact that he he's missed some time this season while suspended due to spreading anti-semitism so uh, no i will not hear your Kyrie irving all-star uh candidacy takes uh no love for chris apps porzingis no love for Chris Osborne. I always say like him and Kuzma have been really good this season. It's just, you know, the Wizards stink and I don't think they've been good, but they haven't been all-star good. Agreed. Okay, let's leave that there. Uh, we will be back next week with a special guest that I think we're both really excited to talk to. But uh, for now, we will leave you with this for the weekend. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. 